0: culturally responsive machine
1: learning. Hi, this is Aga and Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast where we discuss the future of design
2: and much more.
1: Our today's guest Theodore Edmonds calls himself a creativity researcher, cultural futurist, artist, well-being entrepreneur, data and analytics inventor and transdisciplinary academic. He brings together the creative industries with private sector organizations and academic researchers to develop culturally responsive approaches to innovation and workplace well-being. This requires looking ahead in order to plan and to be a culture futurist. Over the past several years, Theo worked as PI co inventor in the National Science Foundation, sponsored a research team of artists, data scientists, and health professionals who created the Cultural Wellbeing Index. Today, his primary role is serving as the Chief Research and Innovation Officer for the College of Arts and Media at CU Denver. In 2020, Theo co-funded Underestimated People of Purpose, a cultural analysis and creativity company that helps companies align their culture change management programs with their innovation agendas. The company is pioneering the new ways to combine quantitative measures of eudaimony well-being, creativity, curiosity and compassionate action to form a suite of data-driven insights into the cultural orientation of an organization that is capable of scientifically predicting many of the most important key indicators for those seeking to align cultural change management and innovation initiatives with the future of health, education and work. Theo, we are super excited to have you with us today.
0: Super happy to be here.
1: I'm sure that you are being asked this a lot, what culture futurist is all about. But I don't want to ask you that. I would love to ask something else. You said that being a culture futurist is not about predicting a future. It's about making sense of data. So what kind of data are you making sense of?
0: Lots of different kinds of data. I think the world that we're in today is a world that has historically from an institutional perspective, been deeply siloed over the last 100 years, meaning this discipline goes deep in its thing, this discipline goes deep in its thing. And often, any number of meetings or groups that I'm with, sometimes it takes two hours for two people to realize they're talking about the same thing because they're both using their own language and their own way of talking about it in whatever discipline they're coming from. And so, from a cultural futurist standpoint, uh, the data that that I'm looking at is not just one set of data, but really looking at what are the indicators and signals out there across the landscape that can help contextualize and understand the why behind the objective what that we typically see in data. You know an example of that would be gross domestic product. So gross domestic product of a nation is a lagging indicator. It, you know, it's a historical economic output. So that tells us what is happening, but it's not really telling us why. But then when you, you think about digging into other cultural signals like what is going on in with racial health disparities, you know, in the United States as a pluralist society, stuff like, like uh, that really is meaningful in, in what it can tell us. What is going on in the arts and media? What is being produced and what is being talked about? And what are artists doing? Uh, that's another data set that we often don't think about as a data set, but it absolutely is. What is going on in education? What are the current kind of models that are, if you look at like Gen Z, for example, Gen Z, you know, 20% of the global workforce by the year 2025. They're bringing an entirely new perspective and level of expectations of what the world needs to be and where the shortcomings that they're of the world they're entering in have been, how they're learning and what they're gravitating towards learning is yet another data set. So if you think about all of these as contextual factors. On any given issue, I think there's probably the opportunity to kind of weave a fabric of these different kinds of data that can help us to ask better questions around things than any one discipline or one silo can do. So it's not a specific data set, but it is an approach to data that recognizes that it's only when you, when you have the kind of the breadth and scope of the human experience in data that you can really zero into understanding where there may be opportunities for, for asking different questions and doing things differently. That sounds like a
2: like a really, really a lot of data and from many different sources. And then you said that we can use it to ask better questions. But that sounds like an infinite job. So... There must be some, I don't know, guiding vectors, factors, or questions that you get asked because you can't explore like, everything that you just described, right?
0: That's fair. That's that's totally fair. And that's part of the job of, of being a futurist, is understanding which data may be the most meaningful at any particular time. Because, you know, like there's, um, if you think about like a human instinct, I uh, just finished doing a, a sprint with a professor at NYU. Who talks about the essentially that there's really kind of like four human instincts that guide us, and so I, when I think about data and which data is going to be important, those human instincts become become a compass for trying to think about how to dig into it. And so the four instincts that he talks about are uh, the brain, the heart, the gut, and the genitals. <laughs> uh, and so uh, Scott Galloway is is this professor's name. About the brain, what he talks about is the human instinct of wanting to know the unknown. You know, ever since we first were able to kind of look up and see the stars, this has been an ever-present human instinct to know the unknown, and something that we can't ever really truly do, but but the instinct is there. It's what Google does. You know, you put your question into Google, (laughs) and it brings back an answer for you. And then there is the instinct of belonging it's a very basic human instinct and we have companies like like Facebook when Facebook enters into the scene when it did it one of the few platforms where you had grandpa and your cousin and your your best friend all kind of in one platform that you could communicate with. And so whether or not it actually creates belonging is a different question because that's part of my own research field, but it meets that human instinct to belong. And then when it comes to the gut, going back to our hunter-gatherer days, we always have this instinct to try to get more while expending less energy if you're hunting to feed your family. The amount of calories that you're going to take in, you're going to preserve those. And so you try to figure out how to get more of that in order to sustain yourself. So that that getting more for less. So when you think about that, Amazon is an example of getting more for the loss. Now, Amazon, in my own kind of personal opinion, is um, I'm, I'm conflicted mm. <laughs> on it because, you know, like it's, it seems to be a little bit like sometimes like they have figured out how to sell us our own time back at a premium and then have a rating system that tells us if we're doing it right or not, (laughs) Uh, which I think is a a really
2: new insight for me. Thank you. It's great. Yeah. Uh,
0: we could get into the implications of that for society later on in the conversation, but but it's an instinct that getting more for less, and then and then with the genitals, it's that status thing. If you look at like birds in nature, there are dances they do, and and so forth to signal to a mate that they're the good mate that can help to sustain the species and 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 provide. And so when you think about apple, you go into you know the. The coffee shop, and you open up an Apple computer. You're signaling. You're signaling that your person, you're maybe in the know. That you're you're creative, which is a very contemporary value that a lot of folks are drawn to these days. The Apple does that, and on top of that, you know, Apple has turned the computer repair shop into a spa, so when an Apple user goes to get their computer fixed, they're going into this beautiful (laughs) retail spa-like establishment, and they're going to the genius bar so automatically that makes you a genius because you own this thing so it's that so it's it's that instinct to know the unknown the instinct for belonging to get more for less and the instinct to signal to the world that you are in the know and capable as a human being and a partner and seeking to be attractive to others so if you think of those four instincts the way we build out data these are unstructured right now because I just finished over the last month or so this sprint. So it's how I'm thinking about data. So like, what is the data on any particular question that could answer and give us some insight into those four instincts? And that's kind of how I'm starting to grapple with wrote this. Historically, I, you know, I come out of a field of public health and the arts, not just public health, but public health and healthcare and the arts. And so that has typically been what I've been looking at a lot over the last decade because public health can tell us quite a bit because when you're talking about public health what you're talking about is is making the unseen seen the invisible visible through data so then you can start working with it i've always found that to be very compelling because it's a bit like being a scientist a shaman a teacher and a trickster all, all at the same time <laughs> and so financial systems which includes economic performance, gross domestic product, profit motives. I've always been interested in that because I think capitalism is such a interesting construct. You know, I'm really conflicted. Some days I'm I'm at peace with it, as in other days I am was definitely not at peace with it. <laughs> But it's what I've always known. I, you know, I was born in America. I grew up in America. So I, and I'm just turned 52. So there's a good piece of me that is also thinking about what can I actually get done in the next 15, 20 years of my productive energy. And I don't think that I'm going to change capitalism. <laughs> 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 so the data, the way we build companies, and you know, like in the American context. I think the arts and media become really important because going back to somebody like Andy Warhol, Andy Warhol is a very deeply conflicted character in my own point of view. But what I thought was really interesting and still remains interesting to me is from his Polaroids that he took to his quote that everybody will be famous for 15 minutes in the future. In his deconstruction and, and packaging in an art piece of capitalism's tropes and marketing, you skipped to today. And just think about how many selfies right now are being taken <laughs> around the world and uploaded on social media. So, you know, like we're always talking about that in very precise ways going back 30 or 40 years. I've got another friend who did a pretty fascinating study back in 2018, another artist, and he was looking at Tupac Shakur lyrics from the early nineties. And he did a semantic analysis of Tupac lyrics and the top 10 things in Tupac's lyrics In the early 90s, in 2018, nine of those things were the top 10 issues by the American Public Health Association. Wow. So I'm intellectually honest. When I talk about art, and poetry and music and media being data, I'm serious about it because I think that that is a futurist notion because when you think about the role of an artist, they spend a lifetime committed to deep listening and reflecting what they're seeing and hearing back to society. And then as a feedback loop that they then take in, and it just always is generative in its nature. Public health operates kind of the same way. There's these feedback loops, but in public health, it's, it's usually always lagging indicators. So it's it's what happened historically. And so you take the futurist nature of the artist who is kind of doing these feedback loops of t- listening, taking in stuff, and then there's a predictive quality to what artists did. They, they shape culture. And then you look at the lagging indicators of public health or economic systems. Somewhere in the middle of those things, I think is a really fascinating conversation that if we disaggregate it, it's powerful, but we don't like disaggregating things. We like historical averages and data, typically. My research and business partner, I often laugh somewhat jokingly, but I think we're actually serious about it, that we're on a campaign to destroy regression to the mean. <laughs> 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 Sign me started. as a person who is going to help you with that. <laughs> uh, you know the regression to mean averages. I don't think they tell us anything except what the dominant culture has historically valued and wants to preserve. So maybe that's a valuable role for it. I don't Who knows? I, it's not my values. Right, so um,
2: that will be something stopping you if you want to influence it. But that's, that's a piece of data, but kind of tactical, right?
0: It all depends on whose hands is the data landing in and what are their motivation and skills and value systems that they're going to be using it for. The next thing I'm going to say is fairly provocative, but i thought a lot about this. I think in some ways Donald Trump has been the most creative person that we've seen in a long time. I completely disagree with everything he is and stands for, and I just want to be completely clear on that. But if you look at what he did and how he manipulated and used, if you just look at the mechanisms of that, you know, like how you use motivations and skills and like resource allocation and put it all together, it's got the mechanisms of creativity, novel insight, value creation. Now, the kinds of value it created, uh, who was creating value for, I believe is destroying a world. That's my value system. But at the end of the day, humans have always entered into any conversation with different value systems. I mean, that's one of the things that makes us human. Several years ago, I got to go to this thing. It was a week long conversation. And about a month out, there was 20 of us there. They sent us out about a 300 page compendium of essays mostly from a Western viewpoint. And it started with Sophocles and Plato, Aristotle. There was also some Confucius and Mencius and, and so forth. But then it brought it all the way through, you know, a linear timeline to Ta-Nehisi Coates and Dr. Maya Angelou. We spent six days reading these essays and discussing them as a group from about 8 a.m. in the morning to about 6 p.m. at night. It was That's it was an unbelievable privilege to be able to have that kind of time to just to devote to grappling with what leadership means. And what I discovered in that, and they brought into clarity at the end of this thing the facilitators did, is that, and I'll just keep it in the West for the moment, throughout Western history for 5,000 years, we have been grappling with what it means to create a good society. And it is on this axis point that sits somewhere between liberty equality on the north-south axis, axis and community and efficiency on the east-west axis, with that mythical good society being perfectly balanced right there at the center. And we are no closer, when you read through these essays, we are absolutely no closer <laughs> to understanding how to create the good society than we were 5,000 years ago when we started thinking and writing about it. And, in fact, what we tend to do is overcorrect from one quadrant to the next as we go through. So humans are complex, messy, fabulous creatures. And we're highly unpredictable, and we are highly confident in ourselves, <laughs> 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 which science is also completely clear on. We're really bad at <laughs> and we're really bad at understanding what we're sure about. But we're sure about it. It, You know, you just ask as you will, we're going to tell you. There was a really interesting research article that my friend Harris, who's leading the development of the Global Brain Capital Index, shared with me recently. And it was this massive study by these neuroscientists that was looking at political ideology, and it was really important that this not be seen as a politically partisan study. So they they truly, big sample size, lots of battery of tests, they really went out of their way to make sure that it was as objective as it could be. And so bottom line is when somebody says, I am conservative through and through, or I am liberal to the core, what they're actually saying is, I am uncomfortable with ambiguity.
1: Mm.
0: Right? there's some space that you can operate in there a little bit. But value systems are uncomfortableness with ambiguity – that's that regression to the mean, that statistical average. I just don't think it is helpful to us in today's world when you kind of really look at, it, at how human nature works. And, you know, companies love their annual climate surveys that they do on, you know, their company culture. Again, regression to the means, it's, it's all going to be about averages. And I've never seen a single climate survey that did not deliver the core message of things are not as bad as people think they are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have yet to see any that did not have that message <laughs> at its core. So, but you know, when they take out their ads showing how the company is the best place to work, and they spend twenty five thousand dollars for an ad in Forbes <laughs> magazine <laughs> on, on their on their new award, they certainly don't take it out and say we're awesome. We have average employees. <laughs> 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 Data is evolving as a field right now, and with Machine learning, I think it presents a hell of an opportunity to create some of those feedback loops we have typically been missing. In my opinion, we've got to get better, though. Honest about the bias in the way we program the coding that's directing the machine learning. We talk about it, but we're still a long way away from actually leaning into it because there's too much money built up around it right now. The second thing is, when I say we've got to get better at it, 80% or so of what we know about the human brain, we've learned in the last 10, 15 years. And so we're at a place in science where these exponential leaps are happening. And so I think we're getting close to where there are potential for culturally responsive approaches to direct coding for machine learning. We're not quite there yet, though, but I think it's possible that we could get there in the next five years of getting some really good experiments in in play
1: you started your initial thought with saying that people ask the what but not the why so i would like to come back to the why or like rather what for or to what end so you collect this data to what end
0: to ask better questions that is my sole reason for existing i think in the U.S., and, and most of what I'm saying today is a U.S. construct, because that is, is where my experience is, and I don't want to be really clear on that. We are trained by government funders, philanthropic funders, and corporate funders to respond to their offer of money for research based upon producing an outcome process is not funded the time to translate between four different sciences so the four different sciences can get to a place of understanding and asking better questions and may end up in different experiments happening than any one field might do and just attaching a few to it you know just for window dressing I think there's a lot of that going on how do we break a cycle that has been institutionalized for a century It's tough. So in asking better questions, I am desperately trying to figure out where are those third spaces that are understood for the value that they bring to the table by creating space for questions to be asked Mm -hmm. rather than always having to be about producing a solution that you're going to go then turn around through a tech transfer agreement you know, put a patent on, create an IP, get it to market, replicate it, scale it, move on to the next hockey stick, company, exit, move on to the next thing. There's a place for that. There's absolutely a place for that. But that can be all we're doing. And, it, you know, and technology is just accelerating things right now. And I just, I think we're precariously close to forgetting that we need to have time to focus and to talk and to have conversation.
2: So do I understand correctly that on one end we have the set of the important questions, for example, like you mentioned, how to build a better society, then what is happening through grants and funding is at the other end of the spectrum, very specific questions or even problems immediately to be solved. And do we understand correctly that you are trying to get more actionable questions in between those two
0: ends? You know, I'm all about in between spaces. I grew up as a queer kid in southeastern Kentucky and Appalachia, a nine generation Appalachian family. And so, When you're gay and you're born into a highly hyper-religious environment, you spend a good deal of your useful energy trying to figure out how to get around cultural gatekeepers. (laughs) Oh, Uh, yeah. (laughs) uh, You know, especially those who select themselves to tell you if you and your life and your ideas have value or not. And so there is a negative impact that has on your health and well-being having to do that. So I'm going to acknowledge that. But at the same time, what you're also doing, and now I know this as an adult <laughs> who's been exposed to the science around it, I was really de- also developing simultaneously this incredible set of skills and cognitive flexibility. When you look at the World Economic Forum or McKinsey or company or whoever, cognitive flexibility is one of the things that every company is going to have to have as one of the top skills in the future of work. But we typically don't have systems. That are built to afford people the ability to start flexing and learning those muscles. But when you come from a historically marginalized or oppressed group, and I know my black friends in the United States absolutely have their own versions of similar stories, or even women in the corporate spaces who go into highly masculine corporate boardrooms and have to. Play to these stereotypical feminine modes that are expected. It's crazy, but that skill set of having to do it again, I don't want to underplay at all the negative impact it has on your well being, but that set of cognitive flexibility I think pr- provides a distinct advantage in today's world. And so those in between spaces and, and understanding how to translate among systems and how to understand uh, the military has a version of it's called situational awareness in the military so we know how to how to do these things but those in between spaces are where there's is where the danger is or where there's opportunity for innovation but that requires nuance and skill that I'm not sure that we fully leaned into cultivating in our educational systems and the way we advance people in corporate spaces etc not that we can't we can't we can absolutely do it but The question is: At what point is the breaking point where that is truly invested in and valued? And again, that those are about asking questions. It's about curiosity.
1: So now you are making me curious about the questions that you
0: are finding. So there's some big ones. I'm just tell you that maybe the top three that come out of my mind right now. The question I'm asking in in the technology space is uh, around the what i mentioned earlier around how do we create culturally responsive coding to direct machine learning i think that is a, a very big and specific area that holds so much promise there's different ways that i'm seeing how we get there but right right now so much of that particular world is guided by a very specific venture capital, and investment model that I'm not sure fully knows how to um, value that yet. The investor community has so much of a say-so in what they're interested in Mm -hmm. that academic institutions and research should be a place where some of that work, and it is. I don't want to suggest that this is not going on at all because there are lots of encouraging signals that I see around this, which have me really excited the cultural responsive machine learning i think there's a, there's two things there that i'm asking it's the question of how do we do it and i think that means following black leaders i think it means following and investing in hispanic and indigenous leaders you know there's a tremendous amount of cultural knowledge in those communities that the investment community, we have that confirmation bias baked into us, right? So if you are historically part of the white male investment community, it's seductive to think that others who look like you are going to be the safer bets in in terms of investment. But I'm not sure that's true in today's world. Maybe it's never been true. Probably hasn't always been true. So how do we break through that and invest in the leadership? And I think that there is this kind of, in the academy, I've experienced this for a there's also still a toxic elitism between bench science and applied science. And what we're talking about here is applied science. And so you add the issues of misogyny, homophobia, and racism on top of the elitism with applied science by a lot of bench scientists, a tall mountain to climb. But I think the, the questions that are being asked by those historically marginalized communities are the questions that I'm most interested in finding the answers to through culturally responsive coding to direct machine learning. Because if you look at the just demographics of society, that's where society is going to. So if you just want to take it from the economic standpoint, you've got two options. You build that in on the front end, or you spend billions of dollars of marketing funds, trying to sell it as an answer to a community who knows that that wasn't the right question to be asking to begin with. And you damage your corporate reputation in the process, potentially. I don't think corporate leaders and VCs who are investing in machine learning and other areas understand how sophisticated their markets have gotten because they have never really had to engage those markets on the terms that they're having to now.
1: When you're saying this, I'm thinking about our conversation with the person we all know, Matt Durden. Matt recommended a book, The Invisible Women, which I read immediately afterwards. And, you know, that was also shocking for me to realize that half of the population is not being researched and one of the reasons is that women are too complicated. This is one of the reasons because, you know, we have a, a very different hormonal cycle and we have the bodies that
2: change in a certain oh, that's way. You meant. I thought something else when you mentioned women are too complicated.
1: No. <laughs> no. <laughs> and basically, it's easier to collect data on men because the variety of symptoms and behaviors is just less rich and therefore easier to assess. So basically, when you think about it, it's really hard to even begin to imagine that this situation is happening in the 21st century, right?
0: I don't find it hard to imagine at all. (laughs) Well,
1: because you're investigating this stuff,
0: right? (laughs) I don't think any one group of humans is more complex than the other. <laughs> so I just think what we research and where we spend our money is an indication of those who are making the decisions what they believe is most valuable. Mm-hmm. A neat circle, isn't it?
1: Oh. Okay, so this is the the first question that you find crucial to keep on asking. What are the other two? Because you mentioned three of them.
0: The other question that I'm thinking a whole lot about these days is why are we doing innovation the way in which we're going about doing it? Part of that comes from growing up in Southeastern Kentucky and Appalachia. The innovation that I saw happening in those unbelievably economically poor communities, culturally rich beyond belief, community rich beyond belief, economically very poor. But the innovation that I see go on in in Appalachia is on par with anything I've ever seen come out of Silicon Valley. We just don't see it and invest in it and consider it to be as valuable because it, we, we've not figured out how to monetize it yet. And it's got all of those pesky social cultural things that engineers don't typically like having to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a neuroscience friend of mine in the creativity sciences. And I, and I love neuroscientists. I'm like, there are some of my favorite people, but like I always laugh about how in their research papers on creativity, they, they'll they come out with these amazing research studies and then at the you know, limitations of future directions of every paper, it's almost like they copy and paste from <laughs> one paper to the next. It's like, all of this is true except for somebody should really look at that cultural thing. <laughs> 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 but I get it. I mean, like, you know, we're all guided by risk and reward systems and if you spend the time to become a, a neuroscientist and, and that's not what you do, you know, you're a neuroscientist, you're not an anthropologist. So looking at how innovation is happening around different kinds of communities and trying to trying to understand the goals of innovation being is it just about creating ip that can then be monetized hmm. that is a goal it, it, it maybe even a, i would say is not a bad one but what else is there they can't be all And what I know from my research is that different people's lived experience causes them to ask different questions in their search to find meaning and make value in their own lives. That is something that's fundamentally wired into all of us. So Mark Zuckerberg's lived experience causes one set of questions to get asked. But what about a Black lesbian in the Southeastern United States or a Hispanic single mother in rural Colorado? How are they creating meaning and making value in their lives based upon the lived, their lived experience? This is where I think the opportunities are for innovation portfolios to be built that could just get us all to the next place. But we struggle with... Turning that into something that is easily monetized. Which is that getting back to that question of why are we doing innovation the way we're doing it and who is it serving? Do we really need another fake word name company to come up with a product for Amazon to sell us as part of their goal of? selling us back our time at a premium to buy that product. It just boggles my mind some some days. And so the question around how and why we're innovating the way we do and what else exists beyond that current lens, that's a big question that I have. And I also think the way in which we're innovating is part of that. So if you think about well-being, because that's a big area of my research. And so you have these hedonic the seeking of pleasure, avoiding a pain, hedonic well-being, and eudaimonic well-being. Eudaimonic being the seeking of meaning. So if you think about the innovation economy and how we have largely invested in it, it is mostly hedonic. It is that like you get on Facebook. It's that capitalist model of that big screen TV you're told you have to get. And that's great when you get it home. And you know maybe the next weekend, it's still OK. But a couple weeks later, it's just the TV in your living room and, oh, look at this one one that just came out. You know, (laughs) those hedonic treadmills get put in place. The first like you ever got on Facebook is probably, from a research perspective, more important to your well-being than a million that will come after it. But you keep going back to get more likes. And what's really interesting about those hedonic approaches to innovation, product development specifically on the innovation side, is... The more of that in which you engage, what the research is suggesting is that you actually become less creative and less curious about the world, the more of that type of activity that you engage in. But that seems to be our primary innovation investment model, heavy on the engineering, low on the sociocultural understandings, et cetera. On the eudaimonic side though, what might an innovation economy look like if that was the primary mode of investment and process and so forth. I always explain it like baking bread, right? So when you bake bread, you're engaging in a rather conceptual activity. Maybe it starts as a a recipe card and that recipe card maybe is written in somebody's handwriting that was meaningful to you and you recognize that handwriting. So you layer this piece of memory before you even start using measurement and heat source and, you know, math and science to bake this very conceptual thing called bread and if you're in the western world largely you're not baking it because you have to in order to to eat it's an experiential thing that you're doing and baking it right and so what we know about that activity is that the more of that you engage in you actually become more creative and more curious about the world because you're you're making meaning and you're asking questions and and That eudaimonic activity seems to be, from the research, highly mediated by your cultural identity. So if that bread recipe, again, if there's your favorite grandmother's bread recipe and there's stories that come along with that, what we see is the signals in the data that that extends the social pro well-being benefit you're getting from engaging in that experience far longer and far deeper than any of the hedonic stuff. So that question of how and why we're doing innovation and how we're funding it and why we're funding it and what we're hoping to get out of it, second that's the second big question I'm asking.
1: A few months ago, I wrote this article about the sixth step of the economic progression by Pine and Gilmore. Mm-hmm. What I was realizing, it, it's been a long process that got me there, is that everything in the economic progression is about the hedonistic approach. And there is a whole new level or levels, I would even say. I cannot see them. Like I see the first one, but I'm sure that there is more. What I proposed is that the sixth step after transformation is change. And basically, we are going to be willing to pay for companies that are actually truly making a right change in the world. Like Patagonia is obviously this almost cliché example. But I think that uh, from also from the some of the research that I've been doing uh, with people who I'm designing for is that they are more and more conscious about wanting to have a choice of a company that aligns with their values and delivers the change they want to see in the world.
0: That actually makes perfect sense to me, what you just said, because that even gets into the third thing I'm thinking a lot about today, is what is the role of a company Yes, in today's world? Davos, what was it, three years ago when stakeholder capitalism became kind of the topic, and we've seen the fits and the starts of environmental social governance, ESG, and then the UN has got their SDGs going. So all of this is moving around. I think where I'm on it right now is it is largely performative. Mm
1: -hmm, Absolutely. It's Um, a
0: theater. It is. It is. It's it's the best show in town. Um, And fools uh, more people. (laughs) It (laughs) It does. It absolutely does. yeah, Yeah. But here's where I'm putting my bets on, I think two years ago, folks were largely saying that the ESGs were not going to keep going. Yeah, it's a blip, and we're going to move on to something else. So here I think two things have happened. Number one is, by and large, I do think people on all sides of the political spectrum understand from the natural disasters that are happening around the world that we do have an environmental condition that has is going to have to be addressed. Whether they choose or not to address it as a politician or as a business leader or something probably depends upon how close they are to the end of their career and their cash out. So I'm looking at Gen Z again. So here comes Gen Z. 20% of the workforce in the next three years globally. Yes, digital natives and that gets a lot of the media about how they're digital natives and what all that means. And and it's got all those hedonic feedback loops and the negative impacts that that causes and stuff. But what what I've also heard from my neuroscientist friends, what they now can pretty clearly show is that instead of storing domains of knowledge in their head, they're actually doing a whole lot of cognitive offloading and storing maps that are augmented by their devices to find the answer and so forth. We don't really know what the implications of that are long-term. And um, there's definitely a negative health implication of their dependence on that. However, that same generation, what gets me excited about them, they don't seem to be waning at all on their commitment to environmental, economic, and social justice. That is a eudaimonic, long-term, uncertain feedback loop and goal and skill acquisition and meaning-making, and it's a world that does not exist today. And so they're holding both of these things. Simultaneously as a generation. And so when we think about the change that you just talked about, I'm looking for companies and I'm looking for researchers and so forth who are actively starting to bring those two things into that eudaimonic and that hedonic into conversation in a meaningful way with each other. So I think it's going to be challenging to know what we're looking at because it's not going to look like what it has looked like in the past, right? Right. And then when you add the generational aspect onto it of older generations, we have a really hard time acknowledging that younger generations may have some insights that may be more valuable (laughs) in today's age (laughs) than, than we do. And how do we support and get out of the way and know when to lead that's a that's an emotional skill and a nuance that I'm not sure that that we have quite honed generationally. And I think we better get on that pretty quick. And that that's on us because I think that it's unfair for I've heard a lot of people say, I'm depending on the younger generation, Gen Z to put it all on them. We've got a role to play in this. We can't just, you know, abstain from our responsibility. In this, but what that looks like is sometimes getting out of the way, but doing so in a way that that also supports. And we see the same thing in, in racial justice here in the United States. I think there are a lot of people that would, from a intellectually honest standpoint, want to see a more racially just society in America. It's become a national security issue. It's become a national health crisis. It's become a lot of things that's holding back innovation as a country here. But, you know, a lot of white leaders have a really hard time getting out of the way and following black leadership. They still think they know more and have all the answers. And, um, you know, our, our brains are wired like that probably four or five biases that are working at any time to tell us that what we're thinking is correct, even though all of the objective data says that no, that's probably not true. But the change piece is a big question, because I don't think we've seen it quite yet. You're you're spot on, though. I hadn't thought about it the way you just framed it.
1: I think that the models, like the economic progression model, they have two roles in a way. On the one hand, they are describing certain phenomena but on Mm. the other hand they are also pinpointing certain directions and you talk about biases so this is definitely my bias i hope that the world will go that way (laughs) and that's why i would like to see this as part of an (laughs) economic offering which is i know very subjective for a person who is writing a piece about this but (laughs) what truth
2: be told joe (laughs) made this model so, like twenty years ago, probably.
1: it was ninety three for the first time, yeah, and so then yeah, ninety even more than that right like 80, 80. And
2: he waited out of these twenty plus years, he waited for like three quarters of it before anyone paid attention to it.
1: Mm.
2: Maybe you have to be patient, I guess
1: no am I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> not impatient here <laughs> anyway, how about the third question?
0: I think for me, that is the third question is, is what does change look like? in the world that is emerging. COVID has been horrible on every single level. At the same time, just in the same way that, that fire can be really clarifying for an ecosystem, I think it has perhaps had some of that effect culturally. Because the heuristic models, the, the mental models that we use, the shortcuts to make decisions before COVID, I don't think we know that we can't rely on those same things anymore. And I think that's that's very healthy in understanding and in seeing and valuing what change might look like. And certainly we see here in the US with the great resignation, as it's, you know, as it's been called people are quitting their jobs in droves and it is, it's across all demographics. It's not just one specific group of people. And so at the time when in a hyper accelerated world because of technology, COVID opened up just a little bit of clarifying space for people to stop and reflect on what was actually happening. I think that could become one of the most valuable gifts that we've ever been given as humanity in some ways. It has devastated families. It has killed people. Like but I'm just I'm just trying to identify the mechanism here of what else has it. And I think that I would hate to see us squander the cost of having that clarifying space. And I think it would be really easy for us to squander that mm-hmm. if we just lunge back into. I don't think, again, going back into, you know, some of the Gen Z conversation, I don't think that that generation is going to allow that to be okay. And what, where this really gets fascinating is if you look in, again, in the U.S. context, but if you look at millennials and you look at Gen Z, they are getting ready to inherit. We're already in the process of the largest transfer of wealth in human history from the boomer generation of Americans to millennials and Gen Z, who have completely different value systems, expectations, et cetera, of the world. So you think about the philanthropy, you think about the investment models, all have been built on this older generation's mindset about how to best deploy capital in a society. That's all changing. And so, i find that to be uh, again just like in some ways like a fire in a in a forest is sometimes is healthy for an ecosystem i think that that there's a couple of between the pandemic between the racial justice movement and this transfer of wealth and a few other things, I think those layers going back to that very first thing we talked about is like what data sets, right? You, you have to kind of put, stack all of those on top of each other and then find what is the, the thread or two that seems like an interesting place that is naturally bringing those things together. And COVID has allowed a lot of people to look and see, oh, well, here's some things that, that we might be able to work with. I find that to be really exciting in some ways. Are you all familiar with Maggie Bowden, uh, Dr. Maggie Bowden? Okay, so she is, from a research perspective, i got two people that just, I I don't know them, but I completely idolize both of them. Maggie's one of them. I don't know her, so Dr. Bowden. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But she talks about in creativity how... There's really three types of creativity. There's exploratory, combinatory, and transformational. So the exploratory creativity is, you know, she talks about how that's where most of our innovation takes place because it has got defined domains, defined boundaries. It's got great gatekeepers in place. You know, even should set me high. He just died when he talks about flow and all of that at the end of the day I, i've been kind of a little conflicted because there's not it's not really about freedom high still he always lands on gatekeepers they're still gatekeepers to say it is or is not valuable so in exploratory creativity to find boundaries and gatekeepers I think if you're talking about a pharmacological intervention I think it probably is a good idea to have a chemist who knows that that thing that's being proposed is going to kill everybody it touches. (laughs) Gatekeeper seems like a pretty good idea to me there. But when you start moving into more socio-cultural, multi-generational areas of society, I'm not sure that gatekeeper model is doing us any favors on the innovation front. In fact, I would make a pretty strong argument that it's holding back innovation based upon an individual's own kind of need for preserving their gatekeeper role.
1: Status.
2: Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. Right.
1: There we come yeah. again.
2: Good <laughs> so, job as well. I, th- I think of regulators and that is really gets fuzzy, but I, I don't no, want to yeah. jump the gun. Yeah.
0: Even like when you go moving that second secondary of combinatorial creativity, taking a, an idea from here and an idea from here, you know, that you, and putting them together, machine learning can do that all day long. But is it valuable? There's the novelty and the value piece. There's the two parts of creativity. Probably not. When it does happen, that first exploratory domain gatekeepers is so strong, those ideas from that second column of combinatorial creativity get pulled into that first column. But then what I love about what Dr. Bowden talks about is that transformation of creativity. That's where something comes along that so fundamentally alters some precept of the foundation that the gatekeeper and even the questions that were asked in that first model are not valuable anymore. And so when you think about what we're going through in the world right now, I think there's all types of that kind of, Fluidity that's starting to happen that allows for transformational creativity to come through. Whether it does or not, and whether it gets turned into innovation and economic valuation and a better society, those are all different questions. But I think that that we are in a moment of possibility, unlike any time in my entire lifetime. What happens with it? Yet to be seen. When we look at some of the you know the geopolitical things happening in society right now. I think we see that those gatekeepers are really working overtime.
1: <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> when time is running uh, running out, you're working overtime. <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it's still probably for nothing. I mean, when you said about this transformational innovation, I immediately got the song in my head video called the radio star, right? I mean, (laughs) when this happens, you're done. You fight and you kick a little bit back. I mean, like, you know, Napster music industry. I mean, we've seen it many times over. We we still always
0: know for sure
2: it's not going to happen to us,
0: right? Everything that is nostalgia today was once the (laughs) apex predator. (laughs) 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 I'll just put that out there, you know. Yeah, yeah,
1: so right. Theo, you are working on various indexes. So you've got the Cultural well-being Index. You've got the Small Business Resiliency Index. Why do you think these kind of measurements are needed in this world that we've been describing? Um,
0: that's a great question. I've never quite... Thought about it and just the way you ask it. I think again, it goes back to kind of where I started today with um, these lagging indicators that we have measured ourselves by. I, and there's value in that. In everything I'm talking about, is somewhat of a both and, not an either or. That was uh, very kind clear, of, yes. Yeah. We are talking shades
1: of gray here, right?
0: <laughs> okay, yes. Yes. Those in between spaces. <laughs> um, so, how do we? create something that incorporates that historical construct, present-day narrative, present-day story, and some predictive indicators that we're just now kind of learning how to do scientifically, how do we combine those into a working model of, of metrics that allow us to understand where the signals are coming from, that should not go unseen because they represent opportunity for us as a society or as a business or as a government or as a nation or, or what have you. And I think that stories are the only thing that cha- actually changed the world, but data makes those stories believable and investable in a contemporary society. And so coming from the arts, I think that's where a lot of really great stories get born Coming from science, I think this is where we can lend data and observation and predictive modeling. You put those two things together, when I'm talking about an index, my index is a story. I'm telling a story about a future state that does not yet exist. And here are the pieces of that story that can help get us there. So, when I'm talking about index, that's what I think, as I'm very much in real time thinking through this, I think that's the activity in which I'm engaged. It's storytelling that uses data to tell the story to envision a future in an uncertain state.
1: If I am understanding correctly, the data is turned into a story, or is it the combination of the story and data?
0: It's the combination. And, it, and it, sometimes it can start with the data. Sometimes it could start with the story. Okay. But it's not a linear kind of construct because it's, it's not a pyramid, it's a constellation. <laughs> 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 and we, the story keeps it together. Yeah. 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 You know, and at the end of the day, it, it's how the science of hope works. Hope is not optimism. I and mean, I think a lot of folks conflate the two things as being the same. Optimism is a belief. Optimism says that I believe that things are going to work out in the future, and I don't have to do anything for that to happen. It's what I believe. Hope says that I can because of my actions. Envision a future in uncertain state. Because of my actions, I can gather that first resource that I may need, and because of my actions, I can use that resource to begin creating multiple pathways towards that future uncertain state. That is the the, kind of the triad of hope theory, and that is one of the strongest indicators. It tells us a lot in the clinical space. It's an indicator of clinical outcomes. In the education space, it's an indicator of student success. In the business space, we've now seen a small business resiliency index. That was the strongest signal, period. And so all of these things at the end of the day that get called an index, in some ways, maybe it's just a maybe it's a Trojan horse because index is taken more seriously than the word hope by some.
2: Yeah. So you have to speak the language of the people you want to influence, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Your gatekeepers.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, gatekeepers. This... <laughs> <laughs> and actually this is a story that they are buying into.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, here's the thing. Look, <laughs> my, my artistic, Practice is, and I'm an installation artist, so I'm really good at taking a whole bunch of things that don't belong together in the natural scheme and figuring out how one plus one equals three. And alchemy is something that I engage in, whether it's statistical alchemy or, or artistic alchemy. <laughs> <isn't>
1: <laughs> so your um, installations eventually blow up.
0: <laughs> turning to gold. Uh, or turning to yeah, gold. <laughs> I, when I was in college, I actually did one that did actually that. When, I have still got a scar on my hands from the burn. <laughs> so I didn't do any more that actually blew up after that. <laughs> all but, right sorry but uh you know hope the is burning a, man hope story is... we
2: explore in a different
1: episode <laughs> yeah. sorry
0: yeah. now continue
1: <laughs> okay C- coming back to to you bringing things together that don't belong together <laughs>
0: yeah i love the quote from um uh, christo that uh, a work of art is a scream of freedom in creativity when we boil it right down to its its base essence from a scientific perspective. The one thing that is always clear to me is that true creativity, that's the novel insight plus the value creation. So I'm I'm using both parts of the scientific definition of it there. That always involves some notion of freedom. A gatekeeper and freedom are often at odds with each other. And wherever we see that creativity that moves into that transformational space, it's always based upon freedom in some way. And so when I look at what is happening in society, most of our big leaps forward have come immediately after society has freed itself from some previous Constraint that served it, maybe served it well or served a specific group well at a time. But when space gets freed up for people to think differently and then people experience that freedom in some way that is meaningful to them, we see this ripple effect happen in science and business and so forth. I'm looking right now across the spectrum and who is naming and claiming their freedom. And I, I think that if we look at that, that's going to tell us a whole lot about where the next wave of innovation may come from. Domino Heron, when he was, when he was at uh, Nokia Bell Labs, he was over there experiments in our technology program. And I heard him fairly in the last year, year or so talk one time talking about how innovation and culture change have around the same failure rate in most organizations. Depending on which research you're looking at, it's probably gonna be around 50 to 70%. And that's because they're the same thing. But culture change, we tend to in organizationally, we tend to take that and we put it over in HR, human resources, which is has the function of risk mitigation in most organizations, and we put our innovation over in some other part of the organization. And so, of course, they're going to both have around the same failure, right? Because you can't have innovation without culture change. Mm. Culture change cannot happen without innovation. They are opposite sides of, of the same coin, but we have t- typically not thought about them in the same way. But when you look at them at a societal level, when periods of innovation kind of flourish and come through, it always follows a period of culture change that has been meaningful in some way. There's been... Culture changes have been manufactured in propaganda and media. That's not what I'm talking about. That's a false construct that is engineered to benefit a very specific group. I'm talking about the real messy culture change that mm-hmm. actually happens. Do you know any CEOs that are rewarded for getting messy? I don't. No. They are usually
2: to to, to bring order, huh? (laughs) We might know someone who got fired because of that, but (laughs)
0: that's the closest I can give you. That's it. So at the end of the day, it kind of gets us back to that, you know liberty, equality, community efficiency. We all have these systems of risk and reward. And even like in the diffusion of innovation that's expressed as that bell curve. You have the futurists, that two to five percent out there in the front end, and then you have that ten percent or so that's right there behind the futurists working with those future ideas, trying to figure out what they mean. And then most companies tend to focus on that big, fat middle of the bell curve well that fat middle is the back end of it is always going to be motivated by risk meaning that the risk is always going to be more of doing something new is always going to be more powerful to them than any promise of any reward they'll come on eventually probably maybe but only if they have to because it's becoming convenient for them so most leaders i've seen focus on that front end of the bell curve because they think if we can judge that's that 35%, they're right there. They're leaning the right way. If we could just convince them to come on, get on with the agenda, that's what we need to do. And so their PR machine's going to overdrive. We're, we're trying to sell a future uncertain state to people who are motivated by reward. But the thing that is missed, I think, most of the time about that particular group is they want to be seen on the front end of something, but they want somebody to take the risk out of it first. Mm, yeah. <laughs> right? They don't want to actually take the risk. They just want so they're looking for those who de-risk it. So that group that, that 10% or so that's right there right behind the futurist and right in front of the fat metal, that group is the people de-risking the reward for that 35% just to step into. So I think if we can kind of look at where that is happening, though that group of folks from a sociocultural standpoint, from a business standpoint, from a research standpoint, those are people who typically also are not bound by the historical things that keep people in check. Like the notion of sunk cost <laughs> is less powerful to them because they're right there behind the future. They are change is what motivates them. It doesn't scare them if it's the motivator for them. So how do we find those people in society? James Baldwin was one of those people as a poet, David Bowie, I mean, like there's tons of people who are right there doing incredible work, but we have typically looked at a lot of the artists who are doing that kind of work as entertainers Mm. and not really thought about what they're offering from a cultural standpoint that can be deployed across other systems. People in the academy don't really know how to translate their science to a general public because, you know, they get paid to use $25 words, (laughs) 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 $25 words, <laughs> 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 you know, that other peers. And so like in the public health sector, leading organizations the last few years, and this is before COVID, came out and said that public health's inability to communicate science and what it does is making communities sicker and die sooner. Mm-hmm. The World Health Organization has said in a, in a report, 2014 Lancet report, that the systematic neglect of culture and health and health care is the single greatest barrier to the the highest advancement of health worldwide. And so bringing these these systems together in a way that gets us to the next place, we can't wait for the systems to do it, but there are individuals who are already doing it. So how do we create those in-between those third spaces and really foster that? And COVID, again, I think has really... Encourage new thinking around investment, about the importance of investing, and people who are doing that kind of work. But it's going to be a a process because systems are systems for a reason. They're they're strong. They're built to power reinforces power, mm. and so that's an acknowledgement that we have to lean into. And I think it's, but it starts at a very human human scale change. So we
1: talked a lot about the questions that you are finding that are the questions that we should all be asking ourselves. And if I were to ask you, like, what is your personal motivation to do these things that you are doing, what would that be?
0: To do what I can from where I am, with what I have available to me. To make the world just a little bit better. I'm not. I'm not trying to change the world. I'm just in my sphere of influences. I messily, along with all the other humans, travel across this pale blue dot. How do we leave something better than we found it? That's that is the motivation. Again, growing up gay in southeastern Kentucky and Appalachia, you learn how to hide who you are, until you. When you go through life having to do that and doing that, you know, when you see it, I think we're all, more of us than, than not, are doing that on some level. What are we trying to prove? So, if I can complicate that notion a little bit and free up some space for people to kind of emerge in whatever way is the most meaningful and comfortable for them. It's not a bad thing to do with your life.
1: Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you were to recommend a book for our listeners, that makes them a little bit braver and gets them out of hiding, what would
0: that be? Mm. Gosh, there's, a, there's, there's a few, let me, uh, a book.
1: Wow. Oh, we can spare you too <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've got two that I would recommend one of them is a book called Range by David Epstein it's about the need for generalists in a specialized world and it's a kind of a really interesting approach to it so that, that is one that I would absolutely recommend I think the other other book that I would recommend is any book of poetry that is about a culture that you have no knowledge of, to pick it up and to, um, to have that culture introduced to you through a poet's eyes who is from that culture and from that lived experience. That's always just an amazing opportunity, because it's one of the few experiences that I can think of where none of your things that you think you know about the world is going to work.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Theo, thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. It was a blast. Thank and you And we hope to continue at some point. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com.
0: Here in America, you know, we're we're one of the, the few Western worlds. We've commoditized healthcare. We've commoditized education. As a social unit, that's what we have decided to do for the time being.